right? We just sang the song Ancient Words. Does anyone know? Can anyone shout out? What does the word martyr mean? You die for your faith. Die for your faith, yep. The 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 word martyr um, is there's a there's a Greek verb martyr. Oh, it's I witness, I bear witness to something. A martyr is somebody who dies a witness, a witness to their faith testifying to what they've seen and heard. And the first martyr recorded in the New Testament right, is the one we're going to look at today. Stephen, who gave his life for his faith. So, uh, Ben and Joanna, thank you for picking that song. It's a fitting one. Uh, let's, let's go to the Lord now in prayer, and then we'll look at the story of Stephen. Father, I thank you for the gift of this day and the gift of your word that Stephen held so dear, the word about Jesus that he would give his life for. And Lord, I thank you that he did not die in vain, but that because of his witness, the word exploded all over the ancient world. And we'll see that today. <coughs> Be with us now as we look at what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be covering... A lot of ground in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, we'll be looking at the whole story of the stoning of Stephen, this early church leader. And so uh, we'll just jump right in. It's a, it's a long story. But I just want to start off by reminding you that this man named Stephen is anybody know anybody that's named Steve or Stephen, right? Popular name, two different ways of spelling it. One looks like Stefan and one looks like Steve. I don't really know why the difference, but but anyways, uh, this this is translated <laughs> as Steph, Stephen or Stephen, and he um, is appointed by the twelve apostles in what we looked at last week in verses one to seven. He's one of the seven guys that's in charge of taking care of the widows, ladies who's, who's lost their husbands in the early church, taking care of them by making sure they get fed every day. So that's Stephen's day job. Um, but he also um, has a, a side gig called preaching, right? <laughs> no, Stephen is a very powerful preacher and teacher, so we'll, we'll, we'll look at that this morning. So there, there's going to be several things we'll see. First... In chapter 6, verse 8 to 15, we're going to look at the arrest of Stephen. Second, in chapters 1 to 53, so 53 verses, longest sermon in Acts, we're going to look at his preaching, his sermon. Then we're going to look in verses 54 to 59 at his murder. And finally, in chapter 8, we'll see that the persecution of another person Saul begins. So Saul starts persecuting the church. So follow along as I walk us through the story of Stephen. We're going to look at Stephen's arrest first, verses chapter 8, starting, or starting at verse 8 of chapter 6. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Maybe these were slaves who had been free. Can't be sure. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. So these would have been 
uh, like we looked at last week, the two different types of Jews. These were about Hellenistic Jews, who spoke Greek, most likely, just like Stephen had a Greek name. So maybe these were some of, maybe this was his former synagogue. We don't know for sure, but maybe they had an extra reason not to like him. He was one of their own who started following Jesus. But they couldn't, they began to argue with him. See that in verse 9? But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So, pause a second. When you can't defeat someone intellectually with arguments and reasoning because they're either smarter than you or they're maybe more well-informed than you, um, what do you do? Well, go study harder, go learn how to talk to them better, go read some books. Well, that would be a lot of work. It's, it's really helpful then to resort to what they do. Spread lies about them, half-truths, twist what they're saying, and maybe bash their head in at the end of the day. So that's what we're going to see. Instead of listening very carefully, trying to understand what's being said, they go for some character assassination and distort what Stephen says. That's called slander. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, if you ask Stephen, Stephen, are you blaspheming? What do you think Stephen would say? No! I would die before I blasphemed my king who saved me. But their interpretation of what Stephen's saying is that he's blaspheming. So they're, they're believing he's blaspheming. He doesn't sign on to this. There's a disagreement here. But it sounds bad. He's blaspheming. That's going to get people riled up, so they, they do that worked. Verse 12, they stirred the crowd up, right? They stirred up the people. And the elders and the teachers of the lot, uh-oh, they got the bigwigs involved. The, the powers that be. The same guys that put the Lord Jesus on trial and killed him. The Sanhedrin. <clears throat> crowd of 70 guys in charge of ruling Israel. Intimidating bunch. They'll stop at nothing to stay in power. And they seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. Uh-oh. They know how to get things right. No. They've blown it with Jesus, and we've seen them in chapter 4, chapter 5, with the disciples. Verse 13, they produce false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place. That would be the temple speaking against the temple and against the law, the law of Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Jesus is going to destroy the temple, which, by the way, Jesus didn't say that, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of of an angel, which probably means that uh, it was shining. There was a radiance 
to him. So I want you to think about this for a minute. Stephen is on trial. These false witnesses are saying he's blaspheming against God and Moses. Now, to blaspheme is to speak irreverently or inappropriately about God or about religious things, about some theological truth or about the temple, a holy place in Israel. And so there, there are two main accusations. They're, they're proof that Stephen is speaking irreverently about holy things is that he says Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy the temple and that Jesus will change the customs Moses handed down to the people of Israel. Now, I, I, I want, this is what I want you to see. At face value, both of these statements are actually true. They're not lying, technically, these false witnesses. But they're said here for shock value and without any charitable or thoughtful interaction at all. Stephen wasn't actually bashing the customs Moses handed down to Israel. Sabbath circumcision, the food laws, the sacrificial system. No, he wasn't blaspheming those things and saying, we're changing it all. No, Stephen, the New Testament apostles, Jesus, what they were actually claiming, this is why the witness was false. It was a half-truth. This is why it got leveraged, because there was a truth to it. He was saying the customs of Moses were changing, but what they were all claiming is that Moses himself and all the prophets of the Old Testament were themselves taught that the customs of Moses would undergo some significant transformations when Jesus came and fulfilled all things. That was what Stephen and all the early church and Jesus were actually claiming. Is that, yeah, things are changing because... We don't need sacrifices, sacrifices anymore. The final sacrifice that Moses himself pointed towards has come. So Moses agrees with the change. That, that was the, the arguments of the early church. With regards to the temple, he's speaking about the temple. He's saying bad things about the temple. That it's going to get destroyed. This beautiful building that we love to sing in. And... Um, also sell stuff in at unfair exchange rates and rip people off and cheat and uh, murder people, have trials in that are sham trials, right? This, this, this place, Jesus himself spoke against it. Remember Jesus comes and cleanses the temple? One of his last acts, that was like one of the last straws. In the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. So there is truth to these accusations brought against Stephen. He was speaking against the temple, just like Jesus had. But it's twisted in the mouths of these false witnesses. What it really comes down to is they, they disagree with Stephen's interpretations about Moses, and they disagree with Stephen about Jesus, and they don't believe that 
they have a problem, they don't believe that the temple has a problem, and that the temple is under the judgment of God or of Jesus. So because they don't agree with Stephen's assessment of how bad things are at the temple, you've made my father's house into a den of robbers, and the Romans are going to come and destroy the temple, and you're going to be seeing, you know, Jesus claims that that's according to God's will. That's, that you're going to interpret that as God, as God destroying the temple, putting a stop to the evils that are going on there. And so Stephen is warning them constantly. This place isn't going to be standing in just a few more years. And guess what? 70 AD, that happened. Um, but, but it's easy for them. To, they're just saying, well, he's saying bad stuff about God's house. Can you believe it? He's saying bad stuff about the house of God, that it's going to be destroyed. God would never do that. He's on our team. Even though we killed his son. So, this is, uh, this is why the witnesses are false. is because they're taking some things that Stephen was saying and they're twisting them in false ways. Now look at chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest asked Stephen... Um, are these charges true? And so now we got a shift in our timing the word this morning from Stephen's arrest to Stephen's sermon. Long story. And hopefully as we work our way through this, your eyes won't just glaze over. I, I watch, this is a long sermon. It's a history lesson of Israel. But it's, it's not just a history lesson that Stephen gives them. It's, it's kind of, you got to admit, this is kind of funny, right? Here's Stephen. He's on trial by the guys who have read this book of the Bible. They've read the Bible more than anybody else. They're the Bible guys. And here's Stephen on trial. Stephen's not a religious scholar. He's just some dude that waits on tables and knows Jesus. But he knows his Bible pretty well. And, and Stephen stands up, and he, he gives them a history lesson. He's like, Let's, let me tell you about our history as a people. And what I want you to notice, is, I'll pause and, and point out some things, is the things that he's highlighting as he goes. So Stephen says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. I'm going to tell you the story of our family, the family of Israel. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, and settled in Haran after the death of his father. So God calls Abraham out of Babylon. Stephen's story you'll see, starts in Babylon and ends with him talking about Israel's exile back to Babylon. Abraham is called out of Babylon, and then because of their rebellion against God, the family of Abraham gets kicked back to Babylon. There and back again, the story of Israel. God said, go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living, Israel. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. 
God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. That would be Egypt. God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. God gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Pause a second. Remember at the beginning, Stephen is filled with grace and wisdom. Ah, Stephen and Joseph have something in common. Joseph was rejected by Israel. Stephen's rejected by Israel. Joseph's full of wisdom. Stephen's full of wisdom. So you can see where Stephen's going here. This, um, he starts to work towards his application by highlighting Joseph. Israel's forefathers, the 12 tribes, rejected Joseph. And yet God raised Joseph up and made him a ruler and used him to save God's people. Look how he saved them. Verse 11. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all, uh, down to Egypt. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you hurting each other? You ever tried to break up a fight between two brothers? You might get drawn in, right? Verse 27, but the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So again, we'll pause. The point of this is that Israel didn't recognize their deliverer. They rejected Moses just like they had rejected Joseph years before. Kind of a common theme starting to build here. Now listen 
closely as we see them do it again to Moses. Verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? So, again, he mentions that rejection theme. The rejection of their ruler, the rightful ruler. Moses was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now, verse 36, he led them out of Egypt. So fasting, Moses, I mean, Stephen, like fast for really quick in his story. He's building towards his conclusion. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. We read that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, verse 14 to 19. That is a very significant prophecy in the writings of Moses because it's prophesying about predicting the coming of a prophet like Moses who the author at the end of Deuteronomy tells you hasn't come yet. It's not Joshua, and it's not any of the prophets that came after in Israel. There's a future prophet, somebody who's going to speak for God. God's words are going to be in his mouth. And all the writers of the New Testament, and Jesus himself, say this prophet was and is Jesus. Jesus himself was predicted by Moses, who Israel rejected. So you see kind of where Stephen's going. He, he says, um, he's telling the story of Moses, and he's like, this Moses, by the way, is the Moses that talked about Jesus, who you rejected. He's getting there. Okay? You rejected Moses, you rejected the one Moses talked about. Who's actually anti-Moses here? You. It, so, that's the, again, I kind of jumped ahead. But that's, that, I want you to see, this is where he's headed. So, um, verse 38, he, Moses, was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. By living words, he means the, the Old Testament said, do these things and you will live by them. Words of life. Obey God's word and you find death. Where do we first see that? Genesis chapter 3. Words of death and words of life. Follow God's words and you live. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt where we had cucumbers. I don't know if you remember that. It says cucumber sandwiches. That was the sandwiches. But we had awesome things in Egypt. And like cucumbers heads the list. What? Okay. And uh, leeks and melons. Okay, I can sign up for the melons. Um, and, and, and meat, flesh pots. We want that. We miss that. We want to go back. We hate the desert. We hate this promised land that we haven't gotten to yet. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. 
As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. He went up on Mount Sinai. We haven't seen him in a long time. There's fire and smoke up there. It's scary. Make us nice shiny gods like the nations around us. A calf that uh, we can dance around and worship. Verse 41, that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their hands had made. You can see that story in Exodus 32 in your Bible. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun and moon and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch, it's a false god, and the star of your god, Rephon, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Abraham, out of Babylon, Israel rejects God, and they're going back into exile in Babylon. So that's the that's Stephen's history lesson so far. Um, begins with Abraham coming out of Babylon, ends with the rebellious people of Abraham rejecting the prophets and going back to Babylon. Um, now Stephen is going to um, turn to looking at the temple briefly. Verse 44. Our ancestors had the temple of the covenant law with them in the wilderness, the tabernacle. This was the tent. Uh, the tabernacle was the tent that preceded the temple. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Verse 45. After receiving the tabernacle, this early version of the temple, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And now I want you to see that Stephen here, remember, the charge against him is, he's speaking bad stuff about the temple. Because the temple had become a bad place. Now look at how Stephen's words and his sermons totally minimizes the importance of the temple in Israel at this time. Verse 48, however, he says, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Main point here, guys, God can do without the shiny little box you built him. He's going to be just fine. You've ruined it with your sin and your rebellion and your rejection of Jesus. The temple's been desecrated. God doesn't need a temple. Jesus is going to destroy it. And his new temple, the people of God, they're going to be just fine. Okay? So speaking against the temple here is not, against the importance of the temple, is not unique to Stephen. He's quoting prophets to show it. And now, Stephen moves to his conclusion. A little sermon application here at the very end of this sermon. Verse 51. And here he quotes Moses which we'll see. You stiff-necked people. To be stiff-necked 
is a reference to a calf that has its neck stiff. It, it, won't, it doesn't want to turn the way you want it to go. You ever tried to get a cow to go a direction it doesn't want to go? I have. It's not easy. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. That's a gross image. You have yucky flesh covering your heart and covering your ears. So you can't hear with your ears and your hearts are hard. That's what it means. He's quoting Moses. When Moses himself, this prophet he ta just talked about, was lamenting, weeping over the sinfulness of the hearts of the people of Israel and calling for them to change. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. If you, if you have a Bible with you, you might want to write next to verse 51 in the margin, write Deuteronomy 10, 16. You might already have it, your Bible might already have it marked. But that's what he's quoting. He's, quote, he's taking the words of Moses. I hope you see this. Supposedly, Stephen is anti-Moses. So Stephen is taking Moses and saying, no, you are anti-Moses. And then he's addressing them with Moses' words. You stiff-necked people. Moses says, Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. So just like Israel of old, what Stephen is saying is that this current generation of Jewish people and their leaders, they have sinful flesh covering their hearts, covering their ears, and it needs to be cut away by the Spirit of God himself so that they can hear the word about Jesus and be changed. Then he goes like this. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. See that in verse 51? And then 52, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Think about it. Jeremiah, popular? No. Isaiah, popular? No. Elijah, popular? I, Elisha, popular? No, none of these guys had popularity points at all. Most of them, the kings of Israel tried to kill. So, Joseph and Moses were just two examples, two early examples. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? No, that's the answer. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. In other words, the Israelites murdered some of the prophets who predicted the coming of Jesus. And now, he says, you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. One of the things that Moses says in the law, in Deuteronomy 18, he says, the Lord will raise up for me a prophet like you from among your brothers. And he, I'm kind of, this is my shortened down translation for memory. And he says, I'm going to put my words in his mouth. And he says, to him, you must listen. 
They didn't listen to that prophet. Therefore, they, they um, have not obeyed the law of Moses. They're the ones who are in the wrong. Now, what I want you to notice is that though Stephen is the one on trial by the highest authorities in the land, who is really on trial? The Sanhedrin. Stephen flips it. He, Stephen's like, look, Joseph, Moses, Jesus, there would be, you guys are in the wrong, in the application. How do they take that? Third point, Stephen, murder. 54, when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know how you gnash your teeth. Freaking out. Angry. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Just this radiance. We talked about the weight of God's glory, the beauty of God. He sees, God gives him a glimpse into the presence of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus ain't sitting down. Jesus usually sits on his throne. He's standing up. Jesus is ready to act. When a king stands up from his throne, this is action time, right? He claims he sees the last prophet that the Sanhedrin murdered, Jesus. They know who he's talking about. They, he claims that he sees him standing at the right hand. Look at that. Look, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man character predicted by the prophet Daniel to ascend into heaven and to rule on God's behalf forever and ever. Stephen says, that guy you killed, that guy that you crucified, he's in heaven right now and I see him. Standing at the right hand of God. The son of David has taken the throne. The son of David prophesied about in Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord said to my Lord. That these prophecies, Stephen says, I see him and he's up there right now. And that was the last straw. These guys lose their minds. This is so different from chapter 4 and chapter 5. Back there, they were like, eh, let's rough the disciples up a little bit and let them go. Okay, let's rough them up some more and, and, and let them go. And here, that's it. They freak out. They lose their minds. They cover their ears. They don't care. They could get punished by Rome for this. Big time. Rome is the one that does executions, okay? the Roman Empire. Jesus, they had to run Jesus by the Romans. They couldn't just do this. They wished they could have done this, but they didn't dare, because Jesus was way more popular than Stephen was. So, they're, they're going, they're gambling that doing this is not going to get them in big, big trouble. But they're so angry, they don't care. Anger blinds us, right? When we're angry, we throw reason to the wind. 
They couldn't take it. Because he just said that the guy they murdered is their judge. Along with Moses and all the prophets who they would say they love. So they grabbed him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. So notice a few things. First, I want you to notice Stephen prays to Jesus here. You see that? He prays directly to Jesus. Jesus is one with the Father. When you pray to Jesus, you are praying to the Father, through the Son. We are Trinitarian Christians. We believe in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God existing eternally as three persons in relationship. A mystery, but not a contradiction. One God, three persons. Then, the second thing is that Stephen dies here, the death of a righteous prophet, just as Jesus had died. So, remember, Jesus died saying, into your hands I commit my spirit to his Father. You might remember that on the cross, one of the final words of Jesus. Stephen says the same thing, except it's Jesus' hands. He's... he's Committing his spirit to Jesus. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. And remember what else Jesus cried on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. See that? Jesus, don't hold this against them. May they come to know the forgiveness that I found. That's Stephen's prayer. Stephen doesn't die screaming in rage against his murderers, gnashing his teeth at the injustice. This isn't fair. How could you just do this? You guys should really check with the Romans about this. You know, they ain't gonna like this. No, Stephen's not doing any of that. His king's on the throne. Standing, ruling the universe on his behalf. He's seen him. He's gotten a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. It's, it's just right there. Sometimes we're on the verge of death. God gives that gift to people. The clarity to see reality. And he calls like Jesus. Forgive them. And the beautiful thing here, if you know the story of the book of Acts, is what's coming next. Who here finds forgiveness in this story? Saul, the young man holding the garments right there, for, finds forgiveness in chapter 9. The, the, the only two people that have this type of vision of Jesus on the throne are Stephen and Saul. It's pretty amazing. I, I, I really want to go here when we look at Saul, but I just shouldn't notice that. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing, and then Saul gets addressed from this standing Lord Jesus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
changes his life forever and changes the lives of untold millions, if not billions, of humans who have read his writings since. So, let's look next at verses 1 to 3 at Saul. Saul, before he finds this forgiveness that Stephen is pleading with God to show him, Saul decides to rack up some sins higher and higher. But he thinks he's serving God. Look at this, Saul's persecution. Verse 1, Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Some, by the way, are going to pay for this choice with their lives. Herod puts James in prison and kills him, beheads him, Peter goes to jail. They're staying in Jerusalem no matter what. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul is taking the lead in destroying the church. That the church doesn't mean he's bombing church buildings. Okay? The church is a word that means assembly, the gathering of the people of God. He's destroying these Christians. And the church is scattered. No longer are the Christians meeting daily in large groups at the temple. No longer are they preaching and teaching and healing in large assemblies in, in Jerusalem, at least at this moment. They're, they're spread all over the empire, fleeing to Jewish synagogues, because they're Jews, remember? They're fleeing to Jewish synagogues all over the Roman world. The synagogue was kind of like they met in the big temple, but then they had little places of worship houses that they meet in all over. And our churches are actually somewhat modeled after that. Right? Together we all are the temple of God, but we meet in separate little gatherings. Some in buildings, some in homes, all over the world. Well, they're scattering as Jews, going to all these synagogues. And what you see is as the hammer comes down on the church, you get these fragmented shards of church that just shoot out. Like if you smash a glass. If I, I have one glass here, imagine. I take this glass and I throw it with all my might on the floor. How hard is it going to be to pick up that glass? Pretty easy when you do it like that. But if I take that glass and I smash it and it goes everywhere, there's going to be bits of glass We'll be picking it up. Like Ken will be finding them next year, you know? Oh, there's this little tiny piece that got under there and finally went. That's exactly what happens. This is what happens when persecution hits again and again and again. China's learned this. Russia's learned this. Um, you squash the church, the church goes global. Persecution fuels this movement. Blasting the people of God out of Jerusalem where they were comfortable into the realm 
beyond. And those, verse 4, who were scattered, preached the word wherever they went. And what we see specifically is that these Christians are expanding into the regions directly around Jerusalem, the regions of Judea and Samaria. This story marks a big shift in the book of Acts. Remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? You could thumb back there in your Bible if you'd like. Acts 1, verse 8. Jesus says to the disciples, You will be my witnesses. That's the word martyr, interestingly. You will be my martyrs in Jerusalem. And do you remember what's next? In Judea and Samaria. And then to the outermost parts of the earth. This is the transition. Jerusalem has received the message. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews, and even some priests, as we saw back in verse 7, have come to faith in Jesus. But now, the movement is spread to Judea and Samaria. And that's what we're going to see in the next story about Philip. And then we'll see uh, some more stories about Samaritans coming to faith. So as we close, um, I want you to see just a few points of application. The first point is, is something that just keeps mulling around in my mind as I've, I've read this story. And I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, um, but I, I really think it's important. When the, when the synagogue leaders bring accusations of false witness against Stephen, they, what they do is they take words that Stephen said they take actual things that he was talking about. And, and then, instead of thoughtfully engaging them, and maybe reconsidering their own views, they, they use them in false ways. Steve, Stephen, as I said earlier, would have cringed at the thought that he was blaspheming the God of Israel. What are you saying? I live for the God of Israel. I would never blaspheme the God of Israel. But that's what they charged him of. And, and I, I believe that we as Christians need to be really careful that we don't do the same thing to other Christians, especially, that we find ourselves disagreeing with. We might not stone people with rocks, but do we cover our ears and stone people with our words? It is far easier to bash someone or to label someone than it is to thoughtfully and carefully engage with what they say. Think about what happened in the story, right? The Jews could not reason with Stephen. They gave up trying to argue with him because of the wisdom that he had. And so... When faced with someone that they couldn't out-reason, they decided to smash his head. We don't like what's coming from that head, so we're going to cancel it. Just because someone disagrees with your interpretation of the Bible, or my interpretation of the Bible, or our church's position on the Bible, that doesn't mean that we should say, well, they're just... Stupid liberals, they don't believe the Bible anyways. Actually, 
maybe they really do believe the Bible. They just disagree about what it says. Let's argue at that level, right? Let's not just write them off as they don't believe the Bible. They might actually take the Bible very seriously, as seriously as we do. They just disagree. If you write someone off as, well, they just throw it out the Bible, um, do they sign up for that? Do they say, I threw out the Bible? I don't know. I don't think so. Not usually. There are very few Christians that claim to be Christians that would say, I don't believe the Bible anymore. No, it, we have to be really careful. They might disagree about how the Bible's authority looks. Let's be very careful to say things that in ways that they themselves would agree. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, that's what I would say. The Jews did not do this to Stephen, but it's human nature because it takes work, it takes humility to engage people, and it does take wisdom who to engage. But I, I just want us to be careful as a church because I've, I've failed here in my own life, slandering people that I've disagreed with, speaking in ways that, like, but bearing false witness. Like, oh, they just think that. Well, maybe not. Would they agree with that assessment? If they were sitting right here, would they say, yes, that's what I think? So here's, a, here's an example. Um, one pastor that I don't agree with on everything, but I found extremely helpful, and I know Carl has as well, is a guy named Tim Keller. There was uh, five men who wrote a book a few years ago called Engaging with Keller. And the whole point of that book, which is discontinued on Amazon, not many people bought it, but the whole point of that book is basically that Tim, Carroll, Tim Keller is a liberal and a heretic and should be rejected by not just the Presbyterian church, but every church. And I read some of that book, and I read some reviews about that book, and listen. These guys, if they were in a room with Tim Keller and would say, you believe this, I guarantee you, because I've read most of what Keller's produced over the years, he would say, no, I don't. I don't think that. That thing you said I think, I don't think. <laughs> or I can see how you would take it that way, but I don't take it that way. So uh, we as Christians have to be so careful. Again, do, do I... Think everything Kim Keller says is gold and I, I sign up? No, 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 no. Do I think God has used him mightily? Absolutely. Do I really recommend some of his books? Yes, I think they're very helpful. So my point is, as Christians, let's be really, really, let's learn from this story and try to curb the impulse, especially in the age of social media. Oh, we're, the stoning that goes on in the comment sections you know how many minds have been changed by social media? Zero, right? Well, maybe not, but um, I feel like that anyways. I don't know if you can relate. So let's, let's be careful, be quick to, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Second thing, this is, the rest of the applications are short, right? Just wanna see that, you just see that when a Christian dies, their spirit goes to be with Jesus. Jesus himself tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul the Apostle says in Philippians 1 verse 23 that he wants to die and go to be with Christ. 
but it's better for him to stay to work for the benefit, the good of the church at that moment. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And so the spirits of your dead Christian friends and family, they're not just floating around the earth haunting or visiting you. They don't suddenly become angels and get their wings by helping people like Clarence and that's a wonderful life. As great as that story is, it's weird. And they are not in some terrifying place paying for their sins in purgatory. No. They're with the Lord Jesus in the realm of heaven. A far better place. Which means the final thing. Death for the Christian is gain. I can think of a lot of ways I'd rather die than be falsely accused and stoned to death by a mob. Yet, Stephen is not a loser in this story. Jesus is not a loser in this story. Oh, God lost a precious saint today. N no. Stephen gained the presence of Jesus. Into your hands I commit my Spirit, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, my life. And Jesus receives it. Right? Stephen dies seeing the glory and the honor of his king with his eyes, seeing the beauty of the coming age. And when he dies, he gains Christ. For the Christian, it is not death to die. Stephen wins. Jesus wins. Right? That's the story of Stephen. Because as he dies, Jesus' word goes off. And as we'll see soon, Jesus has already marked his next man. The apostle Saul. Paul. Lord, thank you. For this story, this powerful story, I pray that it will shape our hearts and lives this week. I pray that we would have the wisdom of Stephen to reason with people about Jesus. We, we need your help with that. All of us do. I pray that we would have hearts that put all our hope in our spirit, being with Jesus one day. May we be certain in our hearts as believers that it is not death to die, as we'll sing in a few minutes here in the closing song. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.